morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the TT Podcast. Now we're smack bang in the middle of a week bookended by huge races. As we shift from the Flemish cobbles to those in northern France, it's time to look back on an eventful tour of Flanders and forwards to Paris-Roubaix. Joining me to do so, as always, is my co-host Tom. Tom, how are you? Hello, everyone. Yes, I'm good, thank you. Uh, it was an excellent couple of races in Flanders, wasn't it? And I have no reason to see why it won't be just as good this Easter weekend uh, in northern France, as you said, as well. There you go. Um, yeah. That's it. That's I, the episode. Done. That's the episode. I <laughs> just said you off air, Tom. I've got, I've got no real strict schedule in, in mind for this episode. Where would you like to start? Let's start chronologically. We'll go with Flanders first. We'll recap that and then move on to Roubaix after, shall we? Okay, go on. Flanders, go. Recap. It, well, yeah, it is my job, isn't it? Because I know where you were on uh, Sunday afternoon, and I'm sure you don't want to tell the uh, listening public about that at all. I Just a quick one. I was uh, at the Olympic... What's it called? The Olympic Stadium? The Olympic Park? The London, Olymp- the London Stadium. Yeah. The London Stadium, watching Southampton have yet another nail put in their coffin for relegation. Oh, it's lovely. Well, I watched all of Flanders and then saw Newcastle beat Man United 2-0, so it was a fantastic day for me. Right, football chat over. <laughs> yeah. Flanders, do you right. want to start with uh, Tadej Pogacar? You know what? We said it. No, we didn't because we didn't do a preview, but off air we've said it. Everyone else said it in their previews. There was only one way Tadej Pogacar was going to be able to win that race, and th- that's what he did. And it seems that when he's on a day, even when it's completely telegraphed what he's going to do, you cannot stop him. So I, I was sceptical about his ability. And and it's because a lot of people have been like, oh, you know, Flanders really suits him because he's a climber. And I'm like, Flanders isn't really a climber's race per se, right? No, I mean, you don't see the great climbers of the day other than Tadej Pogacar. You're not seeing Egan Bernal and people win Flanders, are you? Yeah, you're not seeing... Uh, Nairo Quintana break away on the Udaquamont. Yeah, uh, Chris Froome never targeted Flanders. It's we could we could it's go absolutely on. not a climbers race. Yeah, <laughs> but I was like, I I don't think I didn't. Well, I, I initially didn't think he had much more of an advantage than say Van der Poel or Van Aert on those climbs. Uh, mm-hmm. Little did I know, he was in thunderous form. Yeah, and I think it was evident quite early on. Obviously, he made the decisive move over the Quermont on the final loop, which was the penultimate climb, and then stayed away over the Paterberg. But 20, 30 kilometers earlier, you could see he's just got this way of riding. He sits in the saddle. He looks so calm while everyone else behind him looks like he's work- looks like they're working very, very hard. Matthew van der Poel was the only one who even had a hope of staying with him because it, it was clear that I don't think Wout van Aert maybe he didn't have the legs. You did see him with a massive gash down his uh, left leg as well, which probably hampered him. I don't know when... I mean, there was that huge crash. We can get onto that as well, caused by the uh, the Bahrain rider coming across from the ditch. Um, but it just seemed to me that other than Matthew van der Poel, the speed with which he got across to Mads Pedersen and just went straight past him as well was unbelievable. So it was, I, I was looking through his Strava times the other day and... It wasn't on that final mm-hmm. ascent. The one before when he went with 55 kilometers to go, he set like four new, well, not new, a couple of them he leveled or, or yeah. equaled people at the top, but like three or four Strava KOMs 
on, like the approach to the Udaquamon going up it. And that was when he bridged across. When he went past Mads Pedersen, that imagine being Pedersen there. You think you've broken away. You think you're on for, I say the biggest victory of your career. He's a world champion. But you're sat there and you're riding your heart out. And Taddy Pogacar comes past you at that speed. Pedersen rode that race perfectly. And there was still nothing he could do when you've got those three behind you and it was those two in the end. Um, when they start coming for you and they're having a good day, there's just there's nothing the rest of the riders seem to be able to do. Yeah, look, I, do, I don't know if Pedersen rode the perfect race. He went very early, but it was, it, was, it was probably the right move for him with the way everyone else was going at the moment. Yeah, and let's not look, he did get third in the end behind two of the greatest riders ever to get on the bike. But you just think, I can't remember... It was a piece I read uh, earlier this week after the race that talked about, um, I think it did talk about Mads Pedersen specifically and said, you know, in any other generation, he could have been one of the greatest riders ever. But he's just, unfortunately for him, and he's still got a very good Palmares, Mads Pedersen, but unfortunately he is stuck competing against Tadej Pogacar, Matthew van der Poel, Wout van Aert. In these types of races, one of them will always be there and they're practically unstoppable. You know what? You're right. I'd, I'd not even thought about that. The yeah. fact that he is a Tour de France stage winner. He's won stages at the Vuelta España. He's a former world champion. And going into that race, people barely mentioned him. Or he was kind of mentioned, like, oh yeah, Mads Pedersen's also a decent one. I think I saw some things that put him as like an outside bet for it. But he was... He actually, um, he actually did beat Matthew van der Poel in that world championships in Harrogate, didn't he? He did, yeah. Van der Poel yeah. struggled in the uh, in the in the rain Her- genuinely horrific conditions i know you were there we've spoken about this before um yeah. i have made a list tom of things i think people might have missed from flanders mm-hmm. okay and i've got a few of them from the men's race that i want to tackle here i did have that race on my screen all afternoon so i'm hoping i've not missed too much here okay i think you would have missed a few of these things um okay you probably didn't miss DSM blocking the road. No, I, I didn't miss it. That was quite evident when they started doing that. Yeah, usually I can see the tactic in that, but it was so early on in the race and they nothing came of it. There's a lot of... Ta- tactically, There was, I think there are a lot of questionable decisions in that race. And the one that springs to mind for me is is Christophe Laporte dropping back for Wout van Aert when the race is already up. Um and I know look, there's been a lot of debate over this, and people have given their reasons. But to me, that will just that will never make sense. Okay, what what do you propose that he should have done? <clears throat> I think it was clear that Wout's race was run. He didn't have the legs. What was the point in sacrificing himself when he 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 at that point? I think he had a better chance being further up the road to do something um, for the team than going back to Shepherd uh, Wout van Aert, who's hit the wall back to wherever they ended up finishing. Sadly, we know that Christophe Laporte, Christophe Laporte didn't really have much choice but to do that after Van Aert no, of course not. gifted him that yeah, Wevelgem victory. I say all all I can say on that is that I think it's going to be a long season and there are probably there will probably be better opportunities and more beneficial situations where Wout Van Aert will need Christophe Laporte later than a race that he must have been ninety nine percent sure he already didn't have a chance in. So do you think he's maybe cashed in his token now? Well, you, you know, they're teammates and probably friends, so there's probably a bit more. It's it's not a, right, I've done this for you, that's it, we do not work together ever again sort of thing. But yeah, he might have used some of the uh, 
the good feeding left over that maybe he should have saved for later. Okay. Um, right, next up on my list of things that I think you might have missed. In the sprint for 43rd place, right, Davide I definitely Bal- missed this. <laughs> yeah, you definitely missed this. There was a, a sprint for 43rd pace, place, and it was between Davide Ballerini, Tim Malir, and Edward Tones. <laughs> Ballerini crashes into the barriers. Yeah, I definitely missed that. What you might have noticed there is that two of those riders are on the same team. So mm-hmm. it's a bizarre situation anyway. Um, Ballerini kind of leads out Malir. And as Ballerini pulls off, Ed to Edward Tunes comes through. Ballerini catches him, catches his back wheel, and goes flying into the barriers. Yeah, you know what? This is the first I've heard of that. I completely missed it. You are correct. Yeah, well, look, I, I don't blame is, you for. I mean, continuing completely to watch unnecessary. The, uh, Why have they done that? But yeah, continuing to watch the race footage. But it, it, it ties into what I think has been. There was quite a big injury list from that race, right? So we had Ben Turner elbow fracture, Tim Wellens collarbone fracture, Biniam Gamay got a concussion on what was his birthday. So he he left that race in an ambulance on his birthday. He, he has some horrible luck, doesn't he? And then Taco Vanderhorn, um, Biniam Gamay's teammate, also had an elbow fracture. And I think, I, I can't be for sure because I didn't watch the race per se, um, but I think a few of those happened in that big crash that you alluded to earlier. Yeah, and look, the rider in question has apologised, held his hands up. It was quite clearly his fault. Um, but when you bring down 100 other guys, God, that's got to feel bad. So I remember, I think it was last year, you and I had a conversation about similar time of year with these early season classics. And there was one where Vanderpoel flew through the streets of this random Belgian town, skipping mm-hmm. over the pavements, back onto the road, up onto the pavement on a corner, back into the road. And I remember commending him on how great that showed his handling was. The the interesting thing about this case is that this happens a lot, right? Where a rider will go off the road, gain a few places, come back on, and it's usually fine. It happens a lot in kind of these these provincial Dutch and Belgian races. Yeah, it, it's never any, never anything that I thought needed massively clamping down on. Now I think the UCI rules say that you cannot go off the road as a blanket ban which i to be honest it only needs to go wrong once like it has and you see that the consequences for that could be season ending for some people involved in that you never know um so i think they do need to be strict on it it needs to be you know you see them like the formula one races talking about track limits and disqualifying people's times and things on it it almost needs to get to that but it's a lot harder to monitor when you're on uh you know roads in anywhere belgium in this case uh you just can't monitor it to the same extent but then they i think they need to clamp down the news today or the news at least this afternoon on at the time Mm -hmm. recording which is what's today tuesday the 4th of april is that the uci has launched an investigation into that crash um i don't really know pretty open and shut yeah (laughs) it's quite damning footage of what happened so uh (laughs) i think it should be a pretty swift investigation um, but I do feel bad for the guy. Yeah, look, obviously he didn't intend on bringing down the entire peloton, but that is what he's done. <laughs> it's it's also the fact that the UCI he, dis- obviously he didn't know that grass verge was actually going to be a bog, but <laughs> you know that's why you, that's why you have to be on the road. That's the point. <laughs> it's, it's also the fact that the UCI pulled him from the race there and then disqualified him, which I don't think I've seen before for a crash. At least I can't remember seeing before for a crash. Um, I've seen them do it with the puppy paws thing. But I've not seen them do it for a crash. And I was like, 
God, the poor bloke. Imagine him sat in the in the car thinking this. I didn't mean to do this clumsily, and he's being pulled and made an example of. But hey, look, I yeah. maybe they need to, look. Maybe it's it's better this than somebody die. Well, exactly. Um, there do, there does need to be consequences, right? It, it's obviously not something he's set out to do and done on purpose, but it is an act of stupidity and it has cost people. So I don't really disagree with punishing him. Okay. Um, <laughs> the next thing, Tom, on my list of things that you might have missed. Let's go. On Instagram, Matthew van der Poel told Taddy Pogacar to stick to the Grand Tours. <laughs> no, I didn't see that. It was, it was just a little back and forth. I thought I'd throw that in there. Uh, I think it was on Taddy's post. Maybe it was in van der Poel's post. Taddy commented something and then van der Poel came back and said, just stick to the Grand Tours. It, it was probably said in jest, but with also an element of like, but also, if you don't mind, can you just leave us alone for this part of the season? Well, I think Taddy could say the same to Mathieu van der Poel, like stay away from the Grand Tours, because when van der Poel did turn up to the Tour de France, he raced full gas for one week and then left, having ruined the race for everyone else. <laughs> um, and the other ones, Tom, I have are from the women's race, which we haven't touched on yet. We haven't, no, but uh, go on. Foregone conclusion. I can't even remember, Tom, who we predicted for that race. I think I got Lotte Capecchi right. I, I, didn't, I didn't have Lotte Capecchi in my top three. Let me, let, let's go back through our predictions, actually, and see how they went before we we do this, because I can't even remember what we said. We, we kind of slap-dashed them together last minute. I, I believe I predicted Wout van Aert, Tadej Pogacar, and Matej Morhic, and I then went for... Demi Vollering, Elisa Longa-Borghini, and Marlene Russo. Okay. So you got two of the podium in the women's race. Yeah, but not the winner. And not the... Yeah, missing the like odds-on favourite who then went on to win was probably not my most sensible move. <laughs> no, look, I'm not going to put that put you down for that time. I, I, we, you know on this podcast we admire a bold prediction, and I'm going to be going bold for my Rube predictions. So I'm not going to show any throw any shade here. I think you'll find my Rubik predictions are very similar to my Flanders predictions. Okay. <laughs> um, another thing that I, 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 on my list of things that you might have missed is Lotte Capecchi on the podium. Her bottle of champagne had a GoPro attached to it. Oh, why? I don't know. I'm yet to see the footage, so I don't know who's harboring that or when that's going to be rolled <laughs> out. But I, I don't think it's going to be a very flattering angle of her chugging some little fizz. But we'll we'll see what comes of that. Anyway. The race was also very good. Kopecky, absolute domination. Yeah, um, I mean, the the winning move, very similar to the men's race, came on the Quaramont, and she stayed away. And yeah, um, that seems to be the go-to formula now, doesn't it? Yeah, it surprised me, because I would have always thought the Paterberg would be a better climb to go on. But maybe, maybe what it shows is how stretched out the field is or at least how stretched out how how distant in ability the top riders are when it comes to this race like usually if they're a bit closer then it sticks together on the Quarmont and then the Paterberg is decisive but maybe when you've got one rider like we have in Tadej Pogaccio like we had in Lotte Capecchi who is genuinely a cut above the rest at the moment or, or on that day a cut above the rest then that's yeah. when the Quarmont works better as a launch pad yeah, um, certainly for Tadej Pogacar as well. You knew he needed to attack from range. I'm not sure a lot. Of, well, you know, there are quicker people if it comes to the line in a bunch than Lotte Capecchi, but she probably doesn't rely on sort of that 
you know, Pogacar went and just time trialed it, didn't he, once he got a gap. And one of the things I was actually surprised at was the Matteo van der Poel maintained the gap to the group behind the same as Tadej Pogacar's. He more or less rode, he, he was he was not riding too much slower than Pogacar was, certainly, and he did not allow the other group in front of him to catch him back. Mm. Obviously, his second place was just as comfortable as Pogacar's win was in the end. Yeah, it, it was a different story in the women's yeah. race. I mean, Kopecky stretched out that gap big time. I think it's obviously got something to do with the fact that the chasing group had a number of her teammates in it as well. So yeah, that and... chase is going to be interrupted. They're going to be impeding that. But I mean, she rode hell for leather towards the finish. And unsurprisingly, SD Works lined up for another one-two finish as well. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, there's not really much more we can say about SD Works. I, and a moment that I wanted to draw attention to was there was a period in the race when SD Works, off the four riders at the front of the group, they had they were they they made up three of them. So it was yeah. Pecky, Royser, and Lorena Ebus, and then Sylvia Persico of UAE Team ADQ. I mean, it's just such a strong team. <laughs> yeah, and when I saw that, I was like, how is this the leading? In, in any other race, you just couldn't have three riders of one team and then another one at the at the end of the race. I mean, it's, it's kind of like when Ian Stannard beat the quick-step guys, when there was like three quick-step guys and one, uh, one Ian Stannard. You just don't see it very much, apart from when you have a team that's completely dominating. Uh, and sadly for Sylvia Persico, it didn't work out for any. But she, had, she put in a great fight to stay mm -hmm. on until the Udaquamon. And then got, you know, royally shook off by uh, by Kopecky. But um, I feel like she she kind of deserved more. I don't know where she came in the end. No, I'll be honest. I've only got the top three in front of me. Uh, we've discussed this before, but no, if you're not on the, no one remembers the any fourth place. There's well, you'll never guess where Sylvia Persico came then, Tom. She could have been fourth. She could have been last. I've got no idea. I've only got the top three in front of me. She came fourth, and I think it's it's good yeah. that we're going to pay homage to her here. For her <laughs> valiant ride at Flanders. Okay, that's the that's yeah, the homage, that's the homage over. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, one last thing I'd like to say about Flanders, and this comes around every year, but I was especially uh, impressed this year. The crowds are just incredible. the The Belgians love their cycling, and I love watching it every year, especially in Flanders. Um, it's just great, and it adds to the race so much. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that. One of my friends was at the race. And yeah. he said that there was a big exodus. So after the men's race, the women's race came through about half an hour, 40 minutes later. And as the he, he was on the Quamon and he said, as yeah. after the riders came through, everyone went to watch it on the big screen to watch the finish. And then they just left and went back into, maybe back into Udenada for a drink or some dinner or something. But I mean, at this time, it's half four in the afternoon. Um, I mean... That is a, I mean, that's a sad reflection on society, I would say. And this is why I'm a big fan of the way, for example, that Roubaix do it moving forward. Put the women's race on the Saturday, put the men's race on the Sunday. I would always have the women's race first um, for, for reasons like this. If you can't do it on the same day, then on the day before. I mean, I, I this is the thing I would have said that, but if you said to me before, you know, we'll do the men's race, the women's race will come through less than an hour later. I would say that's absolutely fine why wouldn't people hang around and watch this and watch them coming through? But apparently, I mean, maybe I can give them the benefit of the doubt and say that 90% of the crowds there didn't know that there was a women's race coming through. But I struggle to believe that is the case. Yeah, obviously, look, you're not 
trying to convince me but sadly i think we know that is still the way some people view it and it doesn't surprise me that that's happened yeah well a, a kind of silver lining on that is that the viewing figures on tv for the women's race were record a record number and what flanders classics who are the organizers of the race think is probably the highest ever in a one-day classic you know outside of the world championships there were 2.5 million people tuned in in flanders and the netherlands for the women's race so hey maybe all those people went home turned on the tv maybe i mean the weather didn't look brilliant uh look we yeah there's there maybe there's reasons why hopefully i will give them the benefit of the doubt on it we'll see we'll see if it changes next year um it's interesting to hear that from the ground because on the tv obviously you only see the first kind of two rows of people and if that is the same for the men's women's race and that's great but what you don't see is that there's eight more rows behind that who have all disappeared afterwards yeah i guess that probably is true um that's a shame but uh, as i said i think with rube being having the women's race on the saturday and the the two obviously the rube women's race is much younger but the two additions we've had so far have been really good as well mm. um, should, we, should we move on to that then tom do you want to I, I guess start maybe by taking us through what we can expect from the route and i told you before this time that i'm going to give you 30 seconds and i'm actually going to time you on that <laughs> that's fine let me know when it's time to go okay three two one go okay so i'll start with the men's route that is basically the same as it's always been there are 29 cobbled sections this year which is down from 30 previously however they've taken two relatively minor ones out and added in a new four-star section not long after the Arenberg. so their hope i think that should you know there's more quality, less quantity. <clears throat> um, there are 17 cobbled sections for the women. They start in a town called Dunin, which your, I don't your time Your time has gone off, but I'll let you carry on. Okay, that's in northern France, somewhere between Paris and Roubaix. Um, it's actually very near the Arenberg, and apparently this is why um, the women's race doesn't have the Arenberg in it, because the organisers didn't want a five-star section that close to the start. Um, other than that, the women's race is about 20k longer. They've just added a loop of some road racing in to see if they can get some moves going a bit earlier before they get onto the onto the pavé. Interesting. Have you seen the stories about the goats on the Ironberg, Tom? Uh, I have. They eat the grass or something and keep it trimmed. That's is that the one you're talking yeah. That, yeah, that's basically the whole story. <laughs> they, they brought in some goats um, to trim back the grass on the Ironberg. I mean, it's, it's, it makes sense because I was thinking, how would you upkeep the grass on the Arenberg. You can't bring in like a lawnmower and just trundle it over the cobbles. Um, the other options they tried were thermic uh, something, where basically you just like a blowtorch, which to me doesn't seem the most environmentally uh, conscious. Uh, of I think ASO. goats are probably a more sustainable solution. <laughs> yeah, and they've got some great PR on it. People are loving it on Twitter. So it's worked wonders for them. I didn't realize that was a thing this year because I was reading about that today and just thought that was something they've done for the first race was in 1896. I think I've spent the whole afternoon reading up on the history of the race. And I just thought they always had goats existed in 1896. I was like, why haven't you always had them? Well, no, this is the first time that they've consciously brought in grazing herbivores to to clean the cobbled sectors. Um, and it's only the Arenberg because that is the one that gets the most overgrown because of the forest and where it is. Those grassy verges on the yeah, that makes sense. Tom, what are you expecting from the race? Um, 
I've checked the weather forecast. There's not really any rain due between now and the weekend, which is sad. A few showers on Thursday. So unfortunately, I think it's probably going to be a clean... I say unfortunately. Unfortunately for us, I'm in the right... Um, I think it's probably going to be a cleaner edition than it has been. We've had some really good ones recently, but that does rely on it being an absolute dog fest for the uh, for the riders. I'm sure the riders will not be as yeah. disappointed as you are. If you want my prediction, I it is very similar to uh, to last week. I have I do think Wout Van Aert's going to win again. Okay, keep backing him. Yeah, look, I, I will. Uh, I've switched sides. I've not got Matthew Van der Poel in here again. To be fair. I've gone a bit more rogue with this one. I do like Mohoric on the cobble, so I've got him second. And I've st- I've stuck Fred right in first because we know we love Fred and he's had some great rides. Um, he looks really good getting in that break in Flanders last weekend and uh, he might sneak a podium. Why not throw him in there? Yeah, look, I mean, Fred could... Hopefully he would have learned from... Uh... Flanders he's I've said this before but he's got a real knack for just reading races he knows which move to be in what his issue is um and I have absolutely no place to make this claim is that he (laughs) seems to be doing too much work when he gets into the breakaway but I guess if he can get into Roubaix keep himself protected then maybe maybe Tom you could be right yeah that that's just racecraft isn't it and that is something he'll learn as he gets further into his career as we know and that i think that's something we've said about him before but you know what these predictions they never come true do they so i we like fred i've put fred in there fred if you're listening go for it <laughs> okay so i'm going uh i'll go up from number three so three yep. I, I'll, I'll be honest i've only come prepared with with my first place so it's it's throwing me that we're now doing three um in third <laughs> place i am gonna say Tadej Pogacar. Not Tadej Pogacar. Uh, Matthew van der Poel. Matthew van der Poel third. Okay. Number two. I am going to say... See, I think we'll have somebody random in number two, right? This is the problem with Rube. It always throws up randomers. I think we could have a Jasper Stuyven in number two. Yeah, he went down in that crash actually at the weekend, so I hope he's recovered from that. But he, yeah, I can see someone like Stuyven. Yep. Let, let, let me just check his riding, otherwise I could look a bit... He is riding, right. Jasper Stuyven, number yep. two. Um, number and your winner, one, then Philippe Ghana. Yeah, that's an excellent shout. Yeah, if things go right on the day and he doesn't get impeded by bad luck, then he has to be the favorite to win. Yeah, uh, completely. I think we talked about Philippe Ghana when we talked about his performance at San Remo and said he looks in great form for Rube as well. So that is something that we've earmarked a few weeks back now. And look, I've not gone for him, but I can absolutely see it happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Uh, women's race. Tom, who's your 3 2 1? 3 2 1, very similar to last week, except I have got Lotta Kopecky in there. Now she's going to win. Uh, Longo Borghini, last year's winner, second. And it's uh, pick your SD Works rider. I like Demi Vollering. I've put her in third. Okay. <laughs> um, I am going to go for a non SD Works win at yeah. Paris Roubaix. So at number three, uh, I'm going with Elisa Longa Borghini. She's still recovering from COVID. She had COVID after the UAE tour, I think it was, or after a race. Anyway, she was off for a few weeks with COVID, came back to Flanders, was really, really pleased with getting fourth at Flanders. Looks like and she's it, riding into some form, yeah. Definitely riding into some form. Um, number two, I'm going Lotte Capecchi. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's interesting. Who's going to win then? Number one, Tom, I am forecasting 
a breakthrough win. I think well, I know where this is going. I don't think you do. For FDJ Suez's Italian Vittoria Guazzini. Okay, that's not where I thought you were going. I thought you were going to say five for Georgie there. Not it could be five for Georgie, you know. Yeah. I think I think five is in for a top ten, certainly. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um Guazzini's been there and thereabouts. She came third at Binder, fourth at Dwarves, eighty-third at the Ronda, so she's been holding back a bit. But this is this is very much a race that suits her. She she yeah, comes through... look, that's a rogue shout. You've come from left field there, but uh like your Filippo Gana well, Filippo Gana's not so rogue, but I wasn't expecting it. Don't know why that's probably on me. Um, yeah, you've you've surprised me with that one. If you don't, if if listeners are listening to this and they don't know much about Vittoria Guazzini, she comes from the same Italian track ilk as Filippo Ganna. She is a formidable time trialist. I think she's the under twenty three world champion uh, time trialist. Maybe yeah, she is. She came fourth in the time in the individual time trial, which gave her the under th- under twenty three championship. Yeah. Um, and is a world champion on the track in the team pursuit, much like is Felipe Gamma a world champion? No, he's not anymore. The Brits uh, are the world champions. He's an Olympic champion, still, isn't he? So we'll he's an Olympic that. champion. Yeah. And Guatzin is a world champion. So they're very similar. I, I'm basically forecasting two very similar riders to do very similar things, like we saw at you, Flanders in a way. You recently told me you've started picking up Italian on Duolingo as well. So I think this is just this is a conversion that's long overdue this is it look i'm, I'm just i'm yeah. forecasting a bit of an italian <laughs> renaissance in uh in cycling and i want to be there able to interpret it when it happens perfect tom before we wrap up i have it on good knowledge that you've got a short quiz for me i do you know what? i've got three questions here for you that we'll rattle through very quickly because we are pressed for time um so they're not really multiple choice either so really gonna have to guess here Number one, I want to know what the nationality of the first ever winner of Paris-Roubaix was. Uh, Italian. Incorrect. And as a clue, I can tell you that there was not another winner from this country until 2015. Who won in 2015? Well, yeah. The Greg Van Aalmatt, Belgium? Week. No, not Belgium. No, no, there have been hundreds of Belgium winners. There's been hundreds of Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> Who won in 2015? Was it uh, Matt Heyman? It wasn't because Stewie O'Grady won in 2007 because they are the only two non-European winners as well. Um, I have gone through the history of this all today. So the winner was, his name was Joseph Fischer in 1896, and he is German. And not until John Dagenkolb in 2015 was there another German winner. The first ever winner of Paris-Roubaix was German. Yes, correct. Interesting. Okay, go on. Question two. When was the last time the race actually started in Paris? Uh, absolutely not a clue. I, I'm going to guess a a, a, uh, a decade. I've got and... I've got three choices for you here. All right, go on. 65, 75, 85. 75. 65. 65 was the last time it started yeah. in Paris. Well, I think it started in Saint Denis, which isn't even really Paris. It's that, but it's the north of Paris. It's more yeah, Paris we'll than Compiègne is now. Yeah. 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 Certainly. Okay. Well, so that's uh, getting on for sixty years since the race actually started in Paris. And finally, in 1986, 87, and 88, the race did not finish in the velodrome in Roubaix, but elsewhere in the town, um, which are the only three years that's happened since 1943. And I would like you to tell me why, if you can. Historically, what is it gonna, it's not going to be something really boring, like the, the velodrome was going under 
reservation. No, but it's quite boring, but it's not that. Were there some sort of like national strikes in France or protests? You know, if any country could pull off a three-year strike, it would be the <laughs> French. <laughs> but um, no, the race was sponsored by La Redoute, uh, well-known French company. And uh, so it instead finished outside their offices, which are located in Roubaix. Oh, that is a narcissistic move, isn't it? <laughs> but for three years, they moved it away from the velodrome. The iconic finish outside Laradu HQ. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm glad that didn't last very long. Um, <laughs> Tom, I'm I'm heading out this Thursday. You're there. You're going to Roubaix. We should, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, I've completely forgot to mention that. Um, so I'll have some sort of dispatch for you next week, hopefully. Um, I'll I'll put that on the socials over the weekend as well. Wonderful. Uh, Tom, a pleasure speaking to you. I hope you enjoy the race, as do I hope all of our listeners who have kindly tuned in once again. I hope you enjoy the race. Thank you very much for listening and take care. Thanks, everyone.